again, I can't, uh, can't say enough how awesome it is to have you here. Uh, it, it turns out that I am a, um, I'm a big game show guy. Love game shows. Love to watch them. Just a few shout-outs here for your favorite game show. Any nominees? Okay, Family Feud, The Price is Right, Strong. What's that? Hunger Games? That's not a, it's not a game show, okay? Well, I guess it is kind of in a weird, twisted, manipulative way. Uh, my, my favorite game show is Family Feud. And uh, I, I love, like, just even seeing the logo gets me all excited. And so I, I want to I wanna give you a category tonight that would be asked of Family Feud and share the answers if I were to be, and it was just me in the line of buzzers, would I be sharing? So here's the category of Family Feud. Things that are way better when done in a group, okay? So things that you do when, if you were to do them alone, they're kind of lame, but in a group, uh, magical, okay? Or at least way better. Well, if I were to hit the buzzer, and this would probably come in like the five or the six spot, but it would be one of the first things that comes to mind. Uh, next slide, it would be this, is laser tag, okay? Um, laser tag played by yourself, horrible, okay? Have you ever tried this? No, no one has because it's not even an option, you know what I'm saying? Because you grab a laser tag and you're like trying to shoot yourself in the mirror and the reflection, it's just, it's not going to go well, okay? Laser tag is meant for group activity. But even more significantly, my next buzz would get me higher, I think, in the, in the uh, crew. Not watching uh, uh, Jim Fallon here, but laughing. Okay, do this experiment. Go home, watch one of the episodes in the first two seasons of The Office, all right? And, and watch one of those episodes first by yourself. When you come to some of the epically funny moments, you find yourself kind of smirking and chuckling, right? You're like, <laughs> you know, you like... Because it's a little bit weird just to be laughing by yourself. But when you, you watch the exact same episode with a group of people, like all of a sudden you are belly laughing, you're starting to like feel sick in your stomach, you're getting nauseous, because laughing is way, way, way better in a group. In fact, we hold back as individuals. But when we get around folks, man, the office all of a sudden turns into the funniest thing ever. Okay. But not just that, even though I don't have experience in this, my next buzz uh, in Family Feud uh, this is a picture from Tough Mudder, a uh, team of Tough Mudder. Uh, how many of you guys, I know a, a few of us just did Tough Mudder here. And I, when I say us, I'm not meaning me. Ashley, did you do Tough Mudder? That's what I'm talking about, girl. Yeah. So you, you guys know the premise of Tough Mudder. It's, it's a team game. Uh, I would never even consider doing it. Um, a lot of obstacles, a lot of running, which uh, takes me out. And, um, and there's a lot of mud involved. Well, doing the Tough Mudder, uh, Ashley, maybe you could affirm this. Uh, doing the Tough Mudder alone would be pretty horrific, but how was it like as part of the team? Was it pretty cool? It was essential. Okay, I set you up there. If you would have, you know, that could have been a horrible moment. If you would have said, actually, no, it would have been better uh, as an individual. Yeah, it's essential, right? Like, you, you know, your team working, like I would say the same about football. Anytime that you've had uh, a team sport, you know this. Those of you that are married, you know that marriage uh, is way better with two people, okay? Like, like all, all of these things. All of these things are better in a group. Now, I, I say all this, and you can take the Tough Mudder picture down, uh, please. I say all this to say, so far in Joshua, the most impactful thing on my heart, and this is going to bleed over into all the uh, areas and direction that we're going to go tonight, 
the thing that has changed me, impacted me, affected me, is that everything that the nation of Israel is doing right now, they're doing together. It's crazy. We're not talking about 50 of them. We're not talking about a team of, of 12 in the Tough mutter or a team of two in a marriage. We're talking about 1.5 to 2.5 million of them, hundreds of thousands of them, and everything that they're doing right now, they're doing together. We have yet to see in the story of Joshua, people go rogue. Uh, We have yet to see people turn back and go back to Egypt or the wilderness. We've yet to see people run ahead, which we're going to journey and wrestle with that a lot tonight. We've literally watched an entire nation do everything together. They've crossed the Jordan together. They made three days of provisions together. Uh, They now have camped on the other side of the Jordan together. They've been in the wilderness together. It made me realize uh, the power of the statement that I want to make next. Next slide. One of the most beautiful pieces of the body of Christ, which is the church, is that we get to follow Christ together. We get to do it not isolated. Even in the moments when you're physically by yourself, or physically on mission in China, or physically in a co-worker situation where there's no other believers but you in your business, or physically in a situation in school where there's no one that's mentioning Christ to be heard. Even though physically we're by ourselves, we still find ourselves through the Holy Spirit connected to the rest of the body of Christ all over the world. But that truth poses one very difficult question. It's the question that will drive us tonight. It's the question you as an individual and us tonight must wrestle with together. And the question is this. Do we want to be together? Is that what you want? Does your life display, I long to walk with people and serve Christ with others in all things or in all ways? Or would your life say, actually, I'll do that when it's convenient, but really what I want is if I could just walk with Christ alone. God has provided another way, and tonight we're going to walk through that. So open in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to finish the chapter uh, tonight, uh, next week, and the week after, uh, two weeks that we've been waiting for, waiting for. Please don't miss the next two weeks uh, as we walk through what happens in Jericho. Uh, This entire room is going to look entirely different. We're excited about all the things that God has uh, prompted uh, us to do. But before we get to Jericho, after the mass circumcision that happened last week, let's start here in verse 10 of Joshua chapter 5. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, this is just on the other side of the Jordan, just before Jericho, the scripture says this, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And I want to point out something massive that none of us can miss. If you were getting ready to fight a war and you were uh, writing down the things that you must do before battle, uh, in this day and age, my guess is some of them would be sharpen your sword, uh, maybe stretch out the quads, right? Like get some good deep breaths, Uh, Make sure that your strategy is together. You'd be gathering some of the generals and saying, hey, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. So far, the strategy of the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan, now vulnerable 
as Jericho knows they're there, their strategy has been mass circumcision and now keep the Passover. Which I think all of you would say, that's, that, that's not in my top 3,000 of what to do pre-battle. Right. But what it shows is that these Israelites are very interested in remaining faithful to the Lord in spite of the pending battles that are on the horizon. And so the scripture says, they, meaning all of them, together, they keep the Passover. Now the question is, what in the world is the Passover? So if you don't mind, I would like to share with you, show you, encourage you with this. Here's where it begins in Exodus chapter 12. The nation of Israel has been enslaved for over 400 years. God raises up a man named Moses. If you've seen Prince of Egypt, you understand all the doctrine that goes with it. Okay, this man named Moses then all of a sudden goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no dice, many times. But eventually what happens after nine plagues is the Lord uh, decides to add another plague. And in this plague, what he's going to do is he's going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, the only outs of that killing is going to be lamb's blood that's put on the doorposts of all the Israelites. And so they do that. Uh, The scripture says the angel of death comes through. Many, many, many Egyptians die. But what happens in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, is we find out this rhythm now of the Passover to remember. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So what happens is the Lord institutes that this Passover feast is going to be celebrated. Why? So that the people can remember what God's done. As we said uh, a few weeks ago, it's worth the effort to praise the Lord. It's worth the effort to remember what God has done. But then they go in the wilderness, and the question is, did they still celebrate the Passover in the wilderness for 40 years? There's only one mention of a wilderness Passover, and that's in the book of Numbers. I want to show it to you now quickly, just for frame of reference. Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time on the 14th day of this month, which we just saw in verse verse, uh, 10 as well, at twilight. You shall keep it at its appointed time according to all the statutes and all the rules. You shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And so now on the other side of the Jordan, with their enemy before them, with the battle on the horizon, this entire nation together as one, they keep the Passover, they celebrate the feast, and they remember what God has done. Could you imagine that moment? I mean, they're thinking back, to what God did in releasing all of their people from 400 years of slavery. And now they're looking again on the horizon of their enemy. I'm sure many mixed emotions going through their mind. But the people of Israel did something powerful together. Next slide. The people of Israel, number one, they did this. They remember their deliverance together. They take time, keep the Passover, and remember their deliverance together. God has saved many of you. Amen? He's delivered many of you. Delivered you from what you would ask, your sin, yourself, death, the clench of the enemy. He's delivered you, pulled you out of the pit, provided you life. But I want to make sure we're all on the same page with something. 
God delivered you from death and salvation, but I think you've seen he is in the business of deliverance. And even though he delivered you, yes, from death and has now saved you, doesn't he continue to deliver you? Don't you continue to see that he delivers you from that addiction? That he delivers you from that anger? Listen, that he delivers you from that inability to forgive. And all of a sudden you find your heart breaking and extend grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. What if this body was in the together united interest of remembering and sharing how God has delivered us all the time? Do you understand the impact of that? God has delivered me. Oh, he delivered me 10 years ago in my salvation. But let me tell you again what he's done in the work of deliverance. He continues to show how powerful he is in my life. And he's pulled me out of this together as the body of Christ. What if our mouths and our hearts were filled with the remembrance of the deliverance of God? It's what happens in Israel. And then in verse 11, a massive party breaks out. Check this out. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, hello, check this out, they ate of the produce of the land. Unleavened cakes, which doesn't sound delightful, okay, you're like, again, the land flowing with milk and honey, you know, you're expecting Winnie the Pooh to show up, and, you know, all of a sudden, honey dripping down from the Lord. But they're eating, uh, they're eating unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now, this is a massive, massive, massive moment. Please hear this in the entire history of the nation of Israel. I want to tell you why. Next slide. Look at this. The people of Israel share in their inheritance together. This is like one of the first times together. The promised land. They're now in. And now they get to share in the inheritance together. I'm picturing a nation filled with smiles, a nation filled with joy. Certainly there's angst in some, knowing what's coming, but I'm picturing as they eat and as they feast, this entire nation is just celebrating the inheritance that God has. I want to make two observations with you about inheritance that tonight will shape much of, I hope, what we learn. I want to start with this passage. Uh, in Hebrews 9. Therefore, he is the mediator, Jesus, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal, what's the word there? Inheritance. Uh, just so we're on the same page, what happens is the Israelites have the promised land. But the new covenant, ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who unites all those who have faith in Christ, our eternal inheritance is an eternity in the presence of God through the person of Christ, praising him forever. That's what unites us, my friends. We get to share in the promise of the inheritance that's coming. But why does it feel like at times that, that maybe we're not all on the same page in how we receive that inheritance? Um, for those of you that have lost a family member and there was an inheritance that was left to the family, uh, many of you know and can attest to that process generally doesn't go that well. 
if there's ever been family drama, it's oftentimes over and surrounding an inheritance. Why? Because now the, the green's involved, right? Well, who's going to get the car? And who's going to get this? And who's going to get that? And all of a sudden, brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, everyone now wants a piece. And some of you may have experienced uh, healthy situations of this where they actually got to celebrate what God did and the person uh, leaving the inheritance. But you know, oftentimes, the inheritance is taken for granted. People all of a sudden get greedy. Which brings me to my second observation. I want you to notice something very, very interesting. It's crazy to me that Jesus uses an inheritance in the story of the prodigal son. You guys remember the story? Look at this, next slide, in Luke 15. And he said to Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. He wants his inheritance early. So listen, it's not just your family situation where an inheritance can go awry. Apparently in Jesus' day, because he used this to connect with the people, this was known as well. He wants his inheritance early. And he divided his property between them, between his sons to the father. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And look what he did. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, you should be wondering... Um, why are you bringing this up right now? It is so interesting to me that no one in the nation of Israel is recorded running ahead of the rest of the nation and taking their inheritance in. Like nowhere in the scripture do we have and -and so-and-so family ran ahead, found this awesome tree while everyone else ate cakes, unleavened cakes, but they found the pears and the fruits and they just went for it. Like it, it doesn't say that. The scripture says instead of running ahead, they all shared for the first time in the inheritance together in a powerful way. Uh, But this has stirred me, and right now how we as a body must be shepherded. The question is, are we ever running ahead? God's given us an inheritance together through Christ. But are we ever putting our needs before the rest of the body? You see, the scripture says the body is one through Christ. The question is, are you, am I, are we ever forgetting about the rest of the body? Forgetting. Forget you people. Like, I I have to attain this luscious tree for myself, and I'm not going to attain it if I wait on you. Is it possible that the church ever puts themselves ahead of the rest of the body? That's what I'm asking. So I want to give you some indicators that, we, that will help you discern if A, we have ever struggled with this as a body, or if B, you have specifically. Some indicators of running ahead and not considering the needs of others in the church. Number one, when discipleship is not embraced by all believers, we are so passionate about discipleship here because Jesus has gifted us the command. And what happens is when followers of Christ, including my 10-year-old daughter, who came to the Lord at nine years old, who I am sick and tired of the church demeaning our children who want to follow Christ and say, well, there's a lesser version of the Bible for you with pictures. There's a lesser version of the scripture with you that doesn't include some of the hard stuff. Are you kidding me? My 10-year-old daughter, Avery, loves the Lord, and it is her joy, her joy, 
to open up the scriptures and to read Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples and begin to embrace it now. Are you guys with me? Because what's happened in many of your lives, just like it did in mine, it took me 28, 29 years to all of a sudden have my eyes opened to that command does not have exemption clauses. Go and make disciples only if you're good enough, only if you're old enough, only if you're a pastor, only if, only if. Go and make disciples. But what's happened is many of us in the body of Christ have said, yeah, that, that's not for me. Now, Ava right now is in a season of readiness. She's getting ready. I don't believe she's ready quite yet to make disciples, but there's only two seasons, a period of readiness and the rest of your life making disciples. But you run ahead of the body of Christ considering your needs above the rest of us. When you say, the rest of you need to make disciples, as for me and my house, I'm going to get me mine. Are we together, church? And so then what happens is when people are baptized, the same percentage of people that are doing the discipling are looking at the baptismal and saying, well, I, I, guess, I, I guess that's me again. We are an army, Matthias. Look at us. This is just the first gathering. We are an army. God is doing such a work and is doing such a work in discipleship in this body. But my friends, it is time to continually wake up. We are in this together, church, right? This isn't just a few of us. This isn't just Pastor Jared and the 15 who are interested. We are in this together, and that's what makes it beautiful. Not when we're running ahead, not considering the needs of others. We're just getting started here. Some indicators of running ahead. Number two, when personal preference dictates love. Hello, somebody. Woo. Listen, I, I have spent my entire life in the church, and I have seen personal preference of how someone thinks the body of Christ should be, on what they think the volume should be, on how they think the lighting should be, on what the carpet color should be, on how they think the preacher should preach, and, how, and on and on and on. And then if that church or those people fit into our personal preferences, then we will love them. Do you understand, first of all, that if personal preference ever dictates love, that is the very premise of something that's anti-gospel. We laid down our preferences, and it was our joy to do so when we came to the Lord Jesus. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Lay down the stuff that you want to clench. Listen, when he called Peter, Peter was holding a fishing net. I personally hate fishing. I know some of you love it. Praise be to God for you, not for me. He, he's holding the fishing net. Everything that he knows to be comfortable. He knows the smells. He knows what it feels like. He knows what, you know, what the, how to tug when all the fish are in there. And what Jesus says, come and follow me. Peter must make a choice. Am I willing to lay down the things that are comfortable, the things that I know? Am I willing to lay down the, the, the unknown? Am I willing to let go of the net? American Christianity is dominated, dominated by people who are still holding their net, dragging it into the church when the Lord has freed them from that. Now, there's a difference between personal preference and discernment, so don't be misguided. But I sat in three, four, five-hour committee meetings before where people were talking about carpet color. 
We're called to fight the right battles in the right war, and that right battle in the right war is love. Love. And when we lay down our personal preferences, Matthias, even in this body, listen, I long for the seasoned folks in this church to continually, which they're doing so well, lay down some of their preferences so that they can enjoy a life of discipleship. I cannot wait to continue to see the parents who have young kids or growing teenagers in this church continue to lay down their personal preferences. I can't wait to continue to see college students and young adults lay down their personal preferences so that together, together, we can share in love. You don't see the nation of Israel running on ahead. They are one. Everything they're doing right now, they're doing as a nation, and it is beautiful. We're just getting started. Number three, some indicators of running ahead. When serving... It's only for leadership. It's the mentality that there's someone else. American Christianity has been dominated by that statement since I've known it. Oh, there's someone else doing that. There's someone else to do that. There's someone else to step in there. There's someone else to take ownership. I'm sure someone will step up. When the church believes it is their joy to die, that is the moment when we will share in the opportunity to die together. And it's 100% our joy to do so. And again, some of you are saying, what do you mean die together? That seems, you know, somewhat cultish. No, Jesus said. Jesus said, take up your cross. You give up yourself. Deny yourself. You walk away from yourself. What would happen in the body of Matthias is that when we have an opportunity... Um, guys, listen, right now, you guys know this? Right now, we have had, uh, I just want to share this with you. We've had 110 visitors in the last six weeks in this body. That, that, those are just people that have texted in, 110. God's growing us, but for what? I hope not for a worship gathering. I, I hope not to sit on nice black seats that have that bend that you all love so much. Right? I hope he's growing us because he longs for this body to die together. I hope that's the case. Now, certainly he's growing us by some who are curious, who want to know about the Lord, who haven't heard the gospel, and they're going to get to hear it week in and week out, right? They're going to hear Jesus. But for the rest of us, listen, he, ha- he is not doing a work, and he has not brought you here, believer, to sit in a black chair. He has brought you here to die with the rest of these people, and it is your joy to do so. But American Christianity, everything in it will tell you no, consume. Which brings us to our fourth indicator. When, my friends, the local church is just a buffet, then you have run on ahead grabbing your inheritance, don't care about the needs of others, interested in only what you would get. What does this church have for me? Oh, well, I gave that church six weeks, but they didn't stir me up like this church over here, so here I go to the next church, never considering that the moment you walk in the doors as a believer of any, any local church, you are instantly on the greeting team. You are instantly on the prayer team. You are instantly serving. People ask me all the time, so Mark, what would they do if they fired you at Matthias? A, that would, that, be, that would be bad. I would hate that, okay? It's kind of a weird question. People have asked me that, right? I'm not sure if they're implying something. Okay, if my time's coming to an end, I don't know. But I tell them, I, I would show up at another local body. 
And I would walk in the foyer and I'd be high-fiving and hugging and being who God's called me to be. I don't need a name tag or a pastor title to love people and serve the Lord. You don't need loud family leader or disciple. Like, you don't need those titles. We lay down those titles. The church, then, isn't a buffet. The nation of Israel, I am so deeply impacted, is doing everything together. Together. I long for that to be us. And right now, I think there's things for each of you that must be laid down. You're realizing right now you're a consumer. You're realizing right now you're just feeding from the buffet. You're realizing right now, again, not those who are here and curious and those that are here and learning, different story. But some of you have been here six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve months. Let's go together. Together. The nation of Israel is enjoying now sharing in the inheritance, but not just that. Verse 12, this is insane. Check this out at verse 12. Hello. And the manna, the manna, the manna. Can I, can I tell you about manna? Bread from heaven. You want to talk about a miracle? Okay. Like, just, like Texas Roadhouse rolls from the Lord. Okay. But not that good. Okay. <laughs> Probably. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel but they ate of the fruits of the land of Canaan that year. Hello! Could you imagine that moment? All you know is manna. Let me ask the question this way. If God came to us, he wouldn't do this, but if he did. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that because you never know. If, if he came to us and he was like, hey, uh, I'm going to do something to uh, America and you can only eat one food the rest of your life. And it was individualized. Ben, what food would you say? You can only eat one food the rest of your life. What, what food would you say, Ben? Chicken. You want to be more specific or just general chicken? You want chickens to fall from the sky? Like, is that what you're talking about? Okay. All right. Brent, how about you? What, what kind of food would you eat, bro? Uh, hamburgers. Hamburgers. Okay. Anyone else? Any, and pizza? Okay. French fries? Yeah. Some of you would be very specific, right? Uh, actually, Lord, if you could drop a 16-ounce uh, Texas Red House ribeye with some of that garlic butter on top every day, we're good. We're good, right? Here's my guess. Give it a year or two. A year or two. Uh, Lord, uh, can, can we renegotiate? Right? Think about it, Like when you've had pizza. No, that's a bad example. When, you, <laughs> when you've had another food like five times in a week, it starts to get old. Right. Is it astounding to anyone else but me? That in this passage, we don't see people recorded, which I believe they would have, especially given the history of the nation of Israel. We do not have recorded in Scripture people saying, sweet mother of mercy, you know, no more manna. We're tired of manna. Lord, we're so, we're so thankful that the manna is not. We don't see that. It's as if the people realize that God has provided and now he's going to provide in a different way. And all of it to them is all good. I feel like if, if you know, if, if all of a sudden, like, after three years of chicken, Ben was like, dude, like, come on, Lord, seriously? And especially after 40 years, he'd be like, yes, finally. The nation of Israelites, next slide. They're doing this together. 
I love this. They are celebrating God's provision together. They're eating off the land. The manna is done. We don't see complaints. Am I implying that they're doing this perfectly? No. No. I'm just saying we don't have recorded in the scripture that complaints and grumblings are arising just like the generation before them. They're sharing and celebrating in the provision of God. Now, if you look at these three statements, my question for you is, do you want to do these things together? Is this what you desire? Matthias, do we want to come together and remember deliverance together? Is that something we want to do? I'm wondering, church, Matthias' lot, do you want to share in the inheritance together? Remind one another of what we have in the Lord? Do we want to celebrate the provision of God? Guess what? God provided again. There's powerful implications here. And then all of a sudden in verse 13, things get very, very, very interesting. When Joshua was by Jericho, which Gilgal is by Jericho, but I imagine him, though I I don't have reference to affirm this, I imagine him taking a bit of a walk here. When Joshua was by Jericho, scouting it out, seeing it, or at least out on a walk, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, interesting conversation, are you for us or for our adversaries? Uh, Now, first of all, I want to bring up again uh, how old Joshua is. This isn't a young, brave-hearted stallion. This man is 90. Now, I believe he is a fit 90-year-old, albeit, but, but still 90. And the conversation that ensues here, does it strike anyone else as interesting? So far, again, the battle plan is mass circumcision, keep the Passover, and now we're going to ask people with drawn swords if they are enemy. This just seems odd. It's as if he knows when the Lord is behind him, when the Lord is with him, when the Lord has commanded him, What would he have to lose? The courage, I believe, that this conversation evokes is only coming because he knows that God has called him, has commanded him, and is with him. And so he steps up to the the man with a drawn sword and says, so hey, just so we're on the same page, are you for us or against us? Let's Let's just be clear. The majority of us would run. And a lot of us do. You're like, Mark, but I, I don't see many people with drawn swords. I understand. But you see adversaries. There's those out there that are going and coming against you. There are situations that feel like a massive adversary. This circumstance in your life, this relationship. And what I want to propose to you is a lot of the time, a lot of the time, We are running away. Next slide, I want to say it this way. When you are walking in obedience, there is no need to run in fear. No need. Joshua 
Joshua right now is walking in the obedience of the Lord, and there is no need then to run in fear, even if it's going to cost him his life, friends, right? Ask Stephen, who gets stoned, would he say that wasn't the Lord's will? Listen, in that moment, he's enjoying the presence of God in ways that maybe you and I never have experienced. He's walking in obedience. There's no need to run in fear. Because courage isn't coming from within. Remember chapter 1? What did God tell Joshua? Be what? Come on. Be strong and what? Courageous. So guess what? He is. Man with the drawn sword steps right up to him. Hey, are you with us or are you against us? And interestingly, verse 14, his answer, and he said no, which doesn't seem to answer the question really. Um, it, was, it was like an A or B answer. Um, so whoever this is, which we'll get there in a second, uh, just doesn't answer and says no, uh, as if to say neither. But then he drops this on Joshua. Check this out, somebody. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. <laughs> Listen, um, <laughs> Joshua has seen a lot of things, Okay. I mean, hey, think about his last 48 hours, okay? He's seen a lot of things, right? I mean, he's watched rivers be stopped up. Joshua saw all the nation of Israel travel through the wilderness. He saw Moses. I mean, he's seen a lot. And now he's standing next to a man that says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. So I just want to propose it to you. What would you do in that situation? Like right now, that just happened outside. As you were walking down the sidewalk and someone walked up to you, you would probably have questions about their sanity, right? I'm not so sure that you are, buddy, right? Well, Joshua is convinced. Now I have come, and look what Joshua does. He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servants? Who is the commander of the army of the Lord? That's the question. My answer is this. Commentators are mixed. I don't understand how they can be mixed. Joshua knows the law. What does the law say? Thou shalt worship who? The Lord your God only, right? And what we see continually in Scripture is a deflection of worship from angels. No, no, no. No, no, no. Now some would say, well, maybe he's just falling on his face and he's worshiping God somewhere else. What I believe in some way, shape, or form is this is the Lord. Joshua knows it. He falls on his face. Why does God right now choose to come and reveal himself in this way? Why did God choose to reveal himself to Moses from a burning bush? The Lord says, I'm the commander of the army. And Joshua falls on his face, mind you, with 90-year-old knees. Some of you are 55 right now, and you're like, I ain't doing that, right? Right? He doesn't care. Beautiful, beautiful picture. And then look what happens in verse 15. And the commander of the the Lord's army (laughs) said to Joshua, of all the things he could have said to him, all right, man, now it's time to take Jericho. Who said we're going to do this? He makes a shoe reference. 
Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, one of the things I talk about a lot is the longer you're in God's word, the more the catalog of God's word starts to reel in your mind and your heart. In our staff meeting on Thursday, I mentioned to our staff, I can only think of one other time this happens in the scripture, at least to date, only one other. Okay, I want to show you what that is. Next slide, look at this, in Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, this is Moses and God, God called to him out of the bush, the burning bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. It's like, yes, Moses, we know that, okay, verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Two times. Moses hears it. Now Joshua hears it. As if to say, next slide, as if to say this, the presence of God prompts action. Joshua was fully affirmed that the presence of God was with him in the nation of Israel. Moses fully affirmed that the presence of God was with him. But now this moment assures it yet one more time. Take off your sandals, Joshua. You're in the presence of God. This ground is holy. It prompts action. And so I've been wrestling with this statement a lot. And I want to share some of the implications, if you don't mind, with you. The implications here are powerful and they have everything to do with us being together. Next slide. Whoa, 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 whoa. Acts chapter 2. The passage that I romanticized as a teenager. The passage that when I read it, I used to think, oh yeah, if we could just be the Acts 2 church. We would, we, listen, that's what the American church needs to be. We can just be the Acts 2 church, done, game over. But now all of a sudden, I see the power of what's happening in the church in Acts 2. The presence of God prompts action. Where is the presence of God right now, my friends? What has just happened at the beginning of chapter 2? Anyone know? The Pentecost, which means what? The Holy Spirit is now what? Residing in believers. The scripture later says, uh, says Paul, that we are now mobile moving, mobile my rendition, moving temples of the Lord. The Holy Spirit's in us. God with us, in us. The Holy Spirit's in the church. And guess what the action is that the presence of God prompts? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon. What's the word? Hold on, what's the word? Every. I don't know my Greek very, very well. That means every, okay? There's no exceptions here. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Hello, look at verse 44, highlighted in the yellow to help. Next slide. And all who believed were what? They were together. And they had all things in common. And when I read this when I was a teenager, I was like, what does that mean? They all liked, you know, badminton. I'm guessing that's a Jewish sport. You know, they they all liked basketball. They all had the same, you know, taste in movies. Like, what does it mean? I believe what it means is they had everything in common because what they had in common was Jesus and he is everything. 
They were together. I used to romanticize this. Then I had to repent, and now I'm looking back and saying, no, they were on to something. They were unified. They were together. They moved as one. They weren't off doing their own thing. This verse continues. Let's look at this. This beautiful verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and disturbing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple. Yes, my friends, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with what? That's right, all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were together. They had Christ in common. That's all they needed. And where they moved is where God called them, and they did so together. My question for you is this. Do we want to be together? Matthias, this church. Are we interested? Do we want unity? Or, my friends, are we just here to gather together on a Wednesday and then see our city influence go down and not impact our neighborhoods or our coworkers or not share the love of Christ with those in our family who we've been burdened to share with? Do we want, church, to be together in mission? Do we want to be together in praise? Do we want to be together in repentance? Do we want to be together, church? That's the question right now for us, right now. We can't run from it. It's time. It's time to answer that together. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be sharing some more as we watch the power of this nation move together, battle together. But tonight, tonight, we get to do one thing together. We get to come to the table You see, as it came time for, that's right, the Passover. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he says, this is my body which is broken for you, take and eat. Setting up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the church to come together and remember their deliverance. Remember what Christ had done. And then he held up the cup. And he said the powerful words that we just read in Hebrews chapter 9. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Listen, my brothers and sisters, I love you so much. God has incredible things for this church. It's not a, a statement to arouse us. It's a statement of fact. He's called us to be a church, a part of his church, to impact this city and our neighbors, to lay down our preferences, to continue to fight the battle of discipleship and enjoy the fruit of it, to pray that he'll add daily to the number of those who are being saved. Church, he's called us to go together. No one running ahead, no one lagging behind, all of us locked arm in arm, so tonight, as maybe our first act in that, let's come to this table together. We're nothing, we're nothing without Christ, only something because of him. His grace has been extended and so that now we can represent him to a lost and dying world. Church, 
come to the table as one. All those who are believers, pull off a piece of this bread and dip it in the cup and may it be your celebration of unity. Come when you're ready.